Welcome back for, to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I am joined by Dr. Amy Bender. Amy joins us from Calgary today in the land of Canada, although she is originally from the US. Uh, Dr. Amy Bender has a Doctor of Philosophy in Experimental Psychology from Washington State University. Uh, at that same university, she also completed a Master's of Science and she's got an undergraduate degree from California State University, San Bernardino, in psychology. Now, Amy currently uh, is really kind of focused on sleep and athletic performance. Um, and she works with the Center for Sleep and Human Performance in Calgary, uh, helping athletes optimize sleep. In addition, she's also a wife, a mother of three, undertakes Ironman events, and is an adjunct professor of kinesiology at University of Calgary. So quite a busy person. So uh, myself and Amy have been uh, friends for a number of years and uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of this there's a, a lot of stuff here in regard to performance for athletes and a relationship with sleep so I hope you enjoy this episode as with this season we got a couple of minutes of ads and then we'll be straight into the episode hope you enjoy it episode of sleep for performance radio is also brought to you by sleep wa western australia now sleep wa is one of the only few nationally accredited sleep laboratories in western australia meaning that they have put their services and quality systems to the test against the national standards they provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service now i've worked with these guys before they are excellent um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today, and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbis. Orbis are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, 
through to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increase in capacity utilization. Throughput. Increase in revenue, profitability, and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing, and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organize a visit today to your organization. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting to the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners to this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you've accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals so you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, It's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport. It's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC. So it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com. That's fatiguescience.com to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the Ready Bank can improve safety and performance in your organization. Thank you for listening to these ads. Now on to the episode. I'm 
want to start recording this now. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we had an octopus in the garage man to take out from this, you know. So, um, okay. But generally, most people are happy to leave everything in. I might even leave yeah. this part in to highlight the fact that we're having this conversation about editing and it's not edited. All right, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the more authentic, the better. Mm-hmm. All right. Are you ready, Amy? I'll give you a countdown just from three. I'm ready. Three, two, one. Today I am joined on Sleep for Performance Radio by Dr. Amy Bender. Amy, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you, Ian? Not too I bad. mean, Doc, or shall I say Dr. Dunikin? Oh, you can say Doctor, but I prefer the title Lord. Lord is probably Oh, okay. Better. Yeah. Gotcha. I, I always <laughs> like to be called Lord. No one calls me that, though. But yeah, Dr. Doctor. <laughs> All right. Good Thanks. to know. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's all completed. So now we can we can talk uh we can talk as doctor to doctor, like that that scene how a spies like us, if you remember that movie. No, Which, I don't. There's a great scene in that where they're going, Doctor, 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 Doctor. Spies like us, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd back in the eighties. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, well well see we're off we're off topic straight away. <laughs> all right, Amy, you have a North American accent. You are based in Canada but you are from the U.S., is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Someone um, actually, I've had a few people think that I'm from Canada, so I, I take that as a compliment. But I am, I am from the U.S. You are from the U.S. So whereabouts, Amy, in the U.S. did you grow up? I'm from Spokane, Washington, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, if you know where Seattle is, I'm about five hours east of Seattle, close to the Idaho-Washington border. Yep. That's actually where the Working Time Society conference will be held next year. Not far from there, is that right? In Idaho, across the board? Mm Mm-hmm. Coeur d'Alene, I think. Yeah. Beautiful area. Looks very nice. So you, so you you grew up there and you went to school there? Yeah, I um, I grew up there. I um, went to community college first. I played basketball at the community colleges of Spokane and then transferred to Cal State San Bernardino. I played basketball there in San Bernardino, California, and then came back to Spokane, started off uh, working as a, as a youth childcare worker and then got into the sleep field and um, started working at Washington State University as a sleep technologist, and then got my master's and PhD there in experimental psychology. Mm. So you had a long, wonderful road to the the world of sleep, kind of in and out, like many people. Yeah, I've, I've been in the sleep field, I guess, now 12 years or so, so... And so what was your undergraduate degree in then MA? I got a BA in psychology. Yeah. And then got the master's and PhD in experimental psychology, mm. focusing on sleep EEG. Sleep EEG, okay. And so what was the what was the kind of the topic? I know I know PhDs are probably slightly different in the US than they are here in Australia, but is the is the PhD that you did a combination of coursework and research? Is that how it works? Yeah, so my my particular PhD, um, you had to get a master's first, and yeah. then you took some courses in order to do that, took a few courses for the PhD, and then 
did your, um, once you got to your PhD candidate, then you were solely working on research. Okay. And so what was the, what was the focus or the aims of your research at that, at that time? I was actually working with smokers trying to quit. So yeah, it, it was really interesting. We were trying to see if sleep disturbance during, um, while quitting smoking predicted relapse. Hmm. And what? we're looking at the PSG, the EEG measures, um, how long it took them to fall asleep, all the standard kind of polysomnographic measures. And found, um, as it turned out, everyone, I had a total of 13 subjects, so pretty small, but, and it took a while to recruit that that amount of people. Um, but everyone ended up quit, or everyone ended up relapsing. So it was, it was pretty challenging. And we didn't have an intervention to try and quit smoking. It was all cold turkey. But we did find um, more slow wave activity was, more slow wave sleep was associated with longer time to relapse. Mm. So the better their slow wave sleep, the longer it took them to get back onto the cigarettes in their words. Mm-hmm. And so was, did the slow wave sleep increase when they were, when they were not smoking? No, um, no, it actually decreased. So, mm. yeah, so overall sleep quality, objective sleep quality um, was worse during um, smoking cessation. And was that, a, do you think that was as a function of withdrawals? I think, I think part of it, yes. Definitely um, sleep latency actually decreased. So that was um, during cessation, which makes sense because nicotine is a stimulant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the ability to fall asleep improved, but then staying asleep was where mm-hmm. the issue was. Or the yeah, other. the arousals, they woke up more. Um, they had more stage one sleep. So more lighter, lighter sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when we compared that to a control group, so. Yeah, very interesting. So yeah. what, what made you get into the whole sleep area, Amy? Like, obviously, you're speaking there about your PhD, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the performance area as we go on through this conversation, because uh, that's really what you're in now. So for those listening, this isn't about smoking and sleep. Um, <laughs> but I am interested in what attracts you to looking at sleep? Because many people kind of come into it from a, for different reasons, but not everybody kind of goes to school and goes, oh, I'm going to work in the sleep field. Mm-hmm. So what, what kind of dragged you into this area? <laughs> Actually, my aunt, she was a sleep technologist. So she was at a sleep lab in Portland, Oregon. And I was kind of at a crossroads where I was at. I was kind of looking to transition to a new area, a new field. And she said, hey, why don't you come shadow me at my lab and I'll show you what I do. And so she, she showed me, um, I went there, she showed me the hookups, she showed me what you're looking at, you know, all of the biological recordings and then how to score sleep. And I was really hooked after that. And so I ended up volunteering in Spokane at a few different sleep labs, kind of called around to see who would take me on and um, ended up shadowing at a clinical sleep disorders lab and then got a job just luckily at WSU. 
which is Washington State University. In the, yeah, sorry, uh, WCU, uh, yeah. Washington State University uh, in the sleep research lab. Ah, pretty good. It's a very, uh, uh, so your, your aunt is to blame for you getting it brought mm-hmm. into it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, you kind of got into it through family members. You spoke a little bit about your PhD and the, and the aims around that and this area around sort of sleep and smoking cessation. But then you moved on and uh, let's talk about where you are now. So where are you located now, Amy, and, and what's, your, what's your title and what's your role at where you are now? Sure. I'm, uh, I'm here in Calgary, so I'm at the Center for Sleep and Human Performance. I knew after my PhD that I wanted to work with athletes, just being an athlete myself. And there were only a, a handful of places that was doing that at the time and ended up getting a postdoctoral fellowship here through MyTax, which is a non-for-profit company that helps bridge academia and industry. And um, got, I'm working under Dr. Charles Samuels and Dr. Penny Werdner, who is the Dean of Kinesiology at University of Calgary. Okay. So, is the, so sorry, yeah, so ask, is, 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 the, is the center like a university affiliation or a university owned or how does that work? It's actually a private community-based center. But um, do- both Dr. Samuels and myself have affiliations with the University of Calgary. Oh, okay. All right. And so with the Center for Sleep and Human Performance, do you guys just work with athletes or do you work with industry as well? We, yeah, we work with, with all different types of groups. So we have a focus on shift work and police officers. Um, we work with the RCMP the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, um, the Calgary Police Services. We work with patients with sleep disorders and then also focus on athletes as well because we have the CSI Calgary um, Sport Institute here. And so we have a number of athletes training in Calgary. And so we see a lot of those athletes on a clinical basis, but we also do research. Research as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so the aims of the group is is not just it's it's very broadly focused and it's community based, it's um, athletic focused, it's industry focused, and um, you know it's across nearly all domains. And what sort of um, addition to research you also offer educational services as well? Is that correct? Yeah. So we we offer. Um education services we do a number of presentations to various groups um i work specifically with athletes at this point um so i'm the clinical program director of athlete services so anything related to athletes whether it's um, research or even clinically based i don't actually see patients but i help facilitate recommendations after the fact yeah um so yeah, we we uh, we try and educate as much as we can within the community, and um, also do some research and clinical practice. And you're no stranger, uh, Amy, to TV, radio, and podcasts either. You've been featured as well on a number of different Canadian TV stations, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, a few for some of the work that we're doing. Yeah. And so with that kind of work um, that you've been, been speaking about in the, in the general media, um, what kind of athletes, or what, because this is probably worth noting, the caliber of the athletes you deal with is pretty high. 
Um, so what kind of sports and what kind of level of athletes do you deal with there at the Centre for Sleep? Well, we, we primarily, we deal with all of the Canadian national team athletes across Canada. So with regard to sleep, and so we'll sleep screen athletes, we'll do jet lag and fatigue management planning as well, and um, educate the athletes through presentations, materials that we provide. Um, but we also work with professional teams, recreational athletes, some college athletes, just the whole range of athlete. And what's the predominant sports you deal with um, up there in Canada? Is it, is it mainly like ice hockey or is it a classic sort of North American sports, ice hockey, football, wrestling, or is it quite different what you get? Well, because um, Calgary is more of a winter-based um, center hub for Olympic athletes, we deal a lot with, um, with hockey, with skiers, speed, speed skaters as well, um, more of those winter-based sports. Okay. Curling. Curling. I saw curling. I, yeah, I saw curling um, obviously on TV um, growing up, um, and then I went to Labrador. Maybe oh, it must be seven, eight years ago to do a piece of work for uh, a mining company, and uh, yeah, the local hall there had curling, and I was uh, yeah watching on with with, <laughs> with great joy. Very very social activity I found in that town. I think it was more alcohol and curling going on, but yeah, it looked. It looked yeah. <laughs> we we actually have an Irishman working here at the center. He does a lot of our administrative stuff, and we were sharing an office, and I was asking him about curling and if he knows a lot about it, and he's like, oh, yeah, I used to play it. And he actually, he thought I said hurling and not oh. curling. <laughs> I can tell you the speed of curling and the speed of hurling are completely on two ends of the spectrum. Hurling is like probably one of the fastest ball games in the world. And uh, curling is probably maybe one of the slowest, I think. Of. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> so, yeah. And so um, with, those, with those athletes, Amy, obviously um, you can kind of segregate them into contact, non-contact athletes because a lot of difference between, let's say, hockey players, which can be <clears throat> quite, um, I was going to use the word violent. It can be violent if you want. <laughs> uh, it can be quite aggressive. Uh-huh. <laughs> You find a difference in, let's say, the sleep that athletes who do, let's say, figure skating or speed skating compared to those athletes who are, you know, involved in, in ice hockey games? Well, our particular study, so we um, validated the athlete sleep screening questionnaire and we surveyed 199 Canadian national team athletes from over 20, I think it was 23 different sports. And we did actually look to see if there were differences between the sports, but we didn't find a significant difference. And so my answer to that would be, um, you know, we don't really see too big of a difference in sleep parameters between sports. Oh, okay. It's interesting. And did you see any um, kind of anecdotally from your work with those different athletes? Have you have you noticed any differences between, let's say, contact and non-contact athletes, or team and individual athletes? Um, I haven't. I haven't really noticed a pattern. No. I mean, I just gave a presentation recently to. Um, it was a number of Canadian national team athletes for a summit that they were that they were at and even even during that presentation I mean there were 
there were athletes from all different sports and it was like, they seemed to have, um, you know, similar problems. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because what I found like in the last couple of years, dealing with contact athletes and, um, if you look at the difference between rugby, we'll say, and judo, uh, and some of the work that I've, done, I've completed, is what's interesting is that on the days leading up to a competition or during training, the individual athletes tend to have more sleep disruption prior, mm. mm-hmm. where, the team, where the team-based athletes seem to get more sleep prior, but afterwards, it's the opposite. The individual athletes tend to sleep better where the team-based players don't. Mm. And that, that may be a function of like team dynamics, like not everything is reliant on just one person. Mm-hmm. But then post the game, you probably celebrate as a group, whereas individually, you're more nervous about, you know, pre-competition. And Laura Juliff has found some similar stuff around sleep disturbances uh, prior to competition as well. And, and there's other research out there that would indicate the same in terms of um, self-reported or subjective measures. So it's kind of interesting on that because I think... Um, the strategies for individual athletes prior to a competition or during training may have to be different than team-based athletes. So that's why I'm always interested in that. Yeah, that's really interesting. That totally makes sense that you'd be more anxious because the performance is reliant all upon you if you're an individual-based athlete. And then again, yeah, maybe the celebration is a factor after the match or the game for poor sleep. Yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting. Um, so, Amy, with those uh, different athletes you are working with there, what's the primary goal of working with those athletes? Is it, is it all about recovery? Is it about performance? Is it about long-term health, short-term health? Or is it a combination of those? Or what's your kind of overarching goal with those athletes? What are you trying to achieve? I think um, education is really important. So a lot of them don't know how important sleep is for their performance. So education is really key. And um, definitely framing it within the context of performance makes them listen. You know, if I were to say, oh, sleep helps your well-being, um, I'm not sure anyone would really care. But when you say that, this will, this could and likely will improve your performance, they then start to listen. Yeah. And, and so when you speak with those athletic groups, um, do you have, obviously, well, do you have coaches or athletic staff involved as well? And let's, we'll, we'll break staff into two parts. We'll call them athletic staff who maybe trained or competent in the sports science arena, strength and conditioning and mm-hmm. so on. And then we've got other people who might be technical coaches or management or leadership who may not necessarily be mm-hmm. experts in physiology or sports science, um, but are leaders. And so with those groups um, or those two subgroups, do, do you take them aside and, and do specific sessions for those or do you lump them in with the athletes as well? Well, we recently worked with uh, speed skaters and we wanted to do a study for them looking at kind of what can sleep interventions do for you and can it impact performance. And for that group, we had more of a kind of an intro to the study, you know, for the coaches and the staff members and really what they want to achieve. And so we did provide some background information for that, but wanted to get from them what the goals would be for the study and then did a separate session for the athletes. So I think, yeah, having, um, 
if you can, having multiple sessions like that uh, to those distinct audiences are is really important. Yeah, and the reason I ask, Amy, is because we t- we've taken kind of um, some of our learnings out of, let's say, industry around fatigue risk management systems and applied some of that to the sporting area. So when when we deal with people in a, in a workplace environment, whether it be mining, oil and gas, rail, construction, we generally break into two groups, organizational factors and individual factors. Mm-hmm. And so before we start educating people uh, individually or as a group and tell them how to achieve sleep, what's, you know, you know, what are sleep disorders, all the things that sort of will endure, you know, locus of control, we, we speak with the, um, the technical staff and the leadership staff and, and talk to them about the importance of optimal scheduling. So how mm-hmm. the time of training, the time of finish, the time of competition, the time of travel, all that sort of stuff, um, you know, really affects the opportunity for sleep because from an organizational point of view if we have athletes come in really early in the morning and leave them late at night we're just reducing that time for recovery and with that recovery time there's obviously the sleep time or conversely if we're traveling at like 5 a.m in the morning to fly across the country when we could get a flight at 12 o'clock and arrive more rested and allow athletes to kind of sleep mm-hmm. optimized before an event as well so we find that bringing across um the sort of education in two parts is is quite beneficial and the other thing as well is with some of the limited coaches I've worked with, they tend to have worse sleep than the athletes. <laughs> while, while it's really important for the athletes for physical performance and competition, it's also just as important for the, for the coaches for cognitive performance, decision-making, and informing the strategy for that particular game. So, um, you know, we found some really interesting findings, I think, that we haven't probably really researched, you know, as a, as a direct aim or hypothesis, but it's just been interesting, some kind of sub-findings that's come out, some of the work we've been doing over the last few years. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, definitely having the buy-in from the staff and the coaches because they control, as you mentioned, a lot of times the training schedule, the flight selection, which is important, um, just the systematic um, situations. And so it's really important to have buy-in from them. And, and absolutely, I'm finding that the coaches aren't um, taking care of themselves with regard to sleep as well. And it's just as important for them with the, the cognition and the decision-making. Yeah, it, it kind of goes along with some of the stuff you've been posting recently on Instagram or Twitter, um, which I'd highly recommend listeners to check out Amy Bender, PhD, on Twitter and Instagram. Always good posts. Um, you've been talking to me or, or posting there about, you know, um, making making notes before bed, having a to-do list, you know, basically clearing the head before sleep. So you're kind of mm-hmm. getting all those problems out. And I think that goes on that same point, what you've been promoting as well, which is which is sounds really simple, but can have a profound effect on people's sleep. Absolutely. Um, having a having a bedtime routine is really important. And that's one of the strategies that I always try and um, get my athletes to do. Um, but, you know, starting with a bedtime alarm. So having that bedtime alarm on your phone go off an hour, hour and a half before bedtime to kind of signal, okay, I need to start getting ready for bed. Um, dimming the lights, potentially having blue light blocking glasses, and then doing relaxing activities before bed as well. So a lot of my a lot of the athletes will say, 
well, okay, I'm supposed to put my device away an hour before bed. What do I do within that hour? You know, they're lost. They don't know what to do. So having um, things for them to concentrate on and focus on, such as um, taking a warm bath, which would temporarily raise temperature, but then, then, then plummet to help it make it easier to fall asleep, doing light stretching, doing breathing exercises or yoga. And then the to-do list is, is really a good one because it's been shown to, to help you fall asleep quicker. So just write down five or six things that you need to do the next day um, right before bedtime. And then potentially, you know, reading from a paper book is, uh, will incorporate the parasympathetic nervous system and help you relax more. So just having some of those techniques is really important to, to prepare people for sleep instead of just, you know, trying to work, 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 and then go straight to bed and expect that you'll be able to fall asleep. Doesn't, doesn't really work that way. Yeah, I, I agree. Look, I, I've tried Kindles, iPad, all that sort of stuff, and I keep going back to paper. And I'd love to go completely electronic because I live in a small apartment and I need to reduce space. But um, I've just resigned myself to the fact that I'm probably going to be entombed in books in this apartment. And uh, that's, <laughs> that's just it. And there's probably, there's probably worse vices to have in life than buying to Absolutely, books. yeah. So, yeah. But, but on that, on that point, point as well about, um, you know, electronic devices, are, are, interesting enough, I read on one of Jan Lemore, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, his great infographs on Twitter, another great Twitter account to follow, uh, Jan Lemore, for, um, got these awesome infographs on sport and sleep and all things related, um, where he kind of breaks down these scientific papers in this one-page infograph. Mm-hmm. But he put this great infograph last week, and it's been out for a while, where the night shift mode on iPads and smartphones actually does nothing to help you for sleep. So a lot of people... I would totally disagree with that. Well, hold on now. Let me finish this one, Eric, before we get into a fight. (laughs) 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 I've had many fights. Um, So the study, not my study, (laughs) said that the night shift mode on it um, did did not affect the release of melatonin. However, many people, when you talk about that, say it's actually easier on the eyes. So if they are going to use electronic device, such night shift modes or F.logs actually is a lot better and they do find self-reported a difference um, you know, with, with the electronic device um, on that mode. But seemingly from the samples, saliva samples, if I'm correct, had no effect on melatonin or cortisol. So now yeah. hit me, hit me, hit me. <laughs> I actually, I think this is on one of my Twitter, uh, tw- I posted this a while back when it came out, but um, what they showed, yeah, they did show uh, an eight, I, th- I believe it was an 8% reduction in melatonin when they had the night shift mode on. Um, and that was with one one hour of exposure. And that, I believe it wasn't on the warmest setting. Um, And so from my standpoint, if you're using the flex technology, you have it on the warmest setting 
and you're using it maybe a, less than an hour before bedtime, you're looking at, you know, approximately less than 5% reduction in melatonin, which, so I think at a minimum, uh, we always recommend people to have the Flux technology installed on their devices. So Twilight apps for, for Android and then night shift mode on the warmest setting for the iOS devices. But uh, that's why I really like the blue light blocking glasses is because it, it blocks out 99% of blue light and it's from all different sources. So we have blue light, not just from our electronic devices, but we also have it in our overhead lights and different light sources. So having those blue light blocking glasses will help protect you from all of those light sources and um, help get that melatonin released before bedtime. Do you think, Amy, that we'll ever get to the stage where um, we'll have enough smart technology in our homes where these light, light globes or light bulbs or devices will, will not emit blue light based upon longitude and latitude into the light and dark cycles of that region? Do you think we'll ever get to that where it's kind of designed into it? I think so. I mean, there are a few smart light bulbs out there where, where it will yeah, I think it's the there's a Philips Hue light bulb where you can program it to get rid of all the blue light at a certain time. And you could have theoretically all of those light bulbs throughout your house and then block out all of the blue light um, from those light bulbs. So I think I think we're getting there, definitely. Yeah. I think you also make a good point as well on that infograph, and I'm glad you I'm glad you did it because um this is something that we say to people when you're reading papers is not just to skim the infograph or to skim the abstract. It's actually to read the paper mm-hmm. and understand the complexities of it. And one of the, one of the ones that happened to me probably was I did a study and there's very little in the way of studies looking at the removal of electronic devices or the effect of electronic devices in athletes, probably only about five or six studies. And um, as of a few months ago, probably it was only five. Mm-hmm. But when we removed electronic devices from judo athletes, we didn't find a difference. And so people would be like, okay, so it's fine just to use them as much as possible. Yeah, well, we didn't find a difference. But one of the major components from, from us was getting back on the organizational change or the organizational design is because the athletes were so young and they tend to have a late chronotype or a, a delayed um, a sleep onset, an hour chronotype, mm-hmm. to go to mm-hmm. bed late and get up late. But because training was starting at 6 a.m., we didn't see any difference. So... You know, it's important sometimes when you're designing studies or looking at the results to encompass all those factors uh, because we had a kind of a, an anchor point that was affecting the sleep, probably independent of electronic device. Um, mm-hmm. So while it's interesting that we didn't see much of a difference, you know, and there's still lots of work to be done there. And it was in a kind of a more of a practical sense. Um, you know, it's interesting. And then the other thing as well is from some studies I read um, is they might show a, a difference on sleep latency and so, you know, group one who's using a trying device might take 18 minutes to fall asleep, as an example. Uh, group two then, you know, has their trying devices um, removed and they fall asleep in 12 minutes. So whilst there's a statistical difference between the two groups, 18 minutes versus 12, is it really clinically significant? And we know that anybody who falls asleep within under 20 minutes is in an optimal range. Well, 10 to 20 minutes really is where we should be. And so then again, whilst there's a statistical finding is it clinically relevant as well. And these are all difficulties that we have doing such scientific um, research that's so widely variable amongst people as well. 
Yeah, I I like to present a slide. It's by uh, Gronly, um, where they found that even just a 30-minute exposure on an iPad before bedtime didn't impact any of the normal PSG parameters. But when they looked at the slow wave activity, they found a reduction in those that were using an iPad versus a paper book. So I think people people may not think it's affecting them. Um, they may they say, okay, I can use my device and I can fall asleep within, you know, 10 minutes. But in reality, it could be impacting the brainwave activity and, you know, slow wave sleep is important for where growth hormone hormone is released and is our deepest stage of sleep. So um, still, you know, is that clinically relevant? We don't know the answer to that, but it's uh, something I like to say is, you know, you may not think it's affecting you, but it could be impacting your brain waves. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. And I think like there's so much to be done in this area and we still don't know much about it. Um, the, the other area as well, Emily, is what do you think the difference is? Is it just the exposure to electronic device? Because what I've heard from athletes, individuals is, look, it's not too bad if I'm kind of scrolling through Instagram watching funny videos. It's not really mm-hmm. alert, alerting me. But if I have to jump on my iPhone or iPad or Mac or whatever it might be, laptop, and start answering work emails, then I get really frustrated. And then it's, mm-hmm. I find it hard to sleep. So what, what do you think is the difference there between activity versus exposure? That's a great point. You know, it's not just about the blue light exposure. It's about the content that you're looking at and and is it stressful or is it more of a relaxing, you know, um, people sometimes will relax with like a TV show and TV doesn't seem to be as bad on sleep parameters versus, um, you know, an iPad or a phone close to your face. And I think it has a lot to do with the Um, distance too but definitely I think there's a lot to be explored in in looking at you know content differences um, and whether or not you can get away with just watching a a relaxing tv show yeah so no game of thrones before you go to sleep (laughs) no probably not a good idea but uh, I think also I mean, for, for me, I recommend just get the phone out of the room too. So trying to get that phone away from you, you know, just having a standard alarm clock if you need an alarm clock, because it's not, it's also about almost like anticipation. So those people on a simulated uh, night shift or, or sorry, a simulated on call, if you tell someone, okay, we, you know, you may be on call during the night, they're not going to sleep as well, even if they don't get woken up in the middle of the night, because there's that kind of level of arousal. Their brain isn't as in a deepest state of sleep as it could be. And so I think having a phone right next to you, right, you know, it could be tempting you to look at it in the middle of the night, but it could also be, um, just having it there, it could be an anticipatory response too. Yeah, I, look, we get that as well. I get, I'm going to have that probably tonight. I got to get up tomorrow morning at 4:45 to catch a flight, so I'm probably going to have a pretty crap night's sleep. Probably, I, I tend to wake up um, so I don't miss the flight. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I tend to have that as well. So, 
So yeah, I, I fully, fully, <laughs> fully understand that one. So Amy, coming back to athletes, what do you see a lot of this, these issues with electronic devices? How much of a problem is it with athletes and their performance? Well, um, we did a study. I think it's really, it's really a difficult behavior to change for anyone and, and athletes as well. But um, we did a study with curlers, rowers, and speed skaters. And our, you know, one of the interventions was to put away the devices an hour before bedtime, like a technology curfew. And very few of the athletes could actually do it. So even though we educated them on how important it was, they were still really tempted to use it um, before bedtime and even just that hour before bedtime. And some of the reasons for that, I think um, they had mentioned in the curlers in particular, you know, they finished a game and they needed to kind of relax and talk to their family. And so that was one of the barriers preventing them. And I know a lot of athletes are reliant upon sponsorship and being on social media. So that could be a barrier. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think if we could link it to performance that maybe they would listen a little better but we're not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we're a fair bit away. Yeah, I think there's still a lot to be done. And, you know, a lot of people probably think that there's heaps of research done with, uh, completely with athletes and electronic devices. And like I said, there's probably about five or six studies out there that I'm aware of um, that I've come across. So still lots to do in that area. Mm-hmm. Amy, in recent years, you've been working on, um, you know, questionnaires because a lot of questionnaires around sleep disorders and assessing sleep um, in the general population have been used in athletes. And a lot of those questionnaires probably aren't apt for athletes or don't ask enough uh, specific questions. So you've been developing um, a tool which you spoke a little bit about earlier on called the ASSQ. What is the ASSQ and what does it stand for and what are you trying to achieve with that that new questionnaire? Yeah, so um, it's been a work in progress. So it's the Athlete Sleep Screening Questionnaire. And so I've been here working on the project for my postdoc for three years now. But it has been in development. They've been developing it for almost 10 years now. So it's a really, really long process. But we're finally getting to the end of that. And what it measures is we're looking at... um, just sleep parameters, so sleep quantity, how much sleep you're getting, are you napping, um, the frequency of your napping across the week, and then we're also looking at how satisfied or dissatisfied you are with the quality of your sleep, Um, looking at sleep disorder breathing, sleep disturbances during travel, and also we have some questions in there on chronotype because our research shows that if you're more of that evening type that you have more sleep difficulty. Um, and so, yeah, we, we validated it in, as I mentioned, 199 Canadian national team athletes. And then we had a subset of athletes, uh, about 50 of those um, do our clinical validation study where they came in or, they didn't come in because we were studying them all across Canada, but we had, we did an online interview with our clinical sleep specialist and he rated the athletes based on none mild, moderate and severe category of sleep problem. And then we compared that to our questionnaire scoring system and we found really good results and really good agreement. 
And so, yeah, we're excited. We're in the process of publishing that, and then hopefully it'll be out by the time this podcast is released. We'll see. Very good. And so um, what was kind of the main things that um, athletes flagged up with? What was, their, what was their challenges, disturbances, issues around sleep that most people, most athletes had? It was mainly insomnia. So we yeah. found, yeah, a lot of insomnia, um, maintenance insomnia. So waking up in the middle of the night. Yeah, I didn't mention we, that's one of the questions as well, the time to fall asleep. Um, and so a very, very small percentage we had with some sleep disordered breathing. Yeah. But the main, um, I would say, problems were insomnia and then also some some more of those late evening night owl chronotypes were having difficulty with sleep as well. And uh, it was it was pretty cool because we looked at their sleep at baseline um, using the questionnaire and then we gave all of them recommendations to improve their sleep. And then about four months later, we gave them the questionnaire again and we found that the sleep sleep improved, so we were so we were happy with that, um, showing that if we can intervene and provide recommendations to these athletes, that sleep can be improved. And the point the point of the questionnaire is to flag athletes for sleep problems. So we also want to identify those athletes who are having sleep issues. Um, because, you know, that can affect the longevity of their career, it can f- affect injury risk, it can affect their performance. And so really trying to, to identify those athletes who need help versus those who may need education is really important. And I think that was kind of what was missing from the current questionnaires. The, the main questionnaires being used were validated in more of a just a general population using the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. And from our work, I think that that questionnaire overestimates athletes with sleep problems. So we found about 25% of athletes were in that moderate to severe clinical sleep problem category. Yeah, that's quite interesting there, Amy, because I think, um, and it's, it's a great piece of work, and, and, and it's going to, I think it's, well, I, I would highly highly recommend this tool and highly promote it um, because if you look at um, studies that are out there conducted, let's say, by sports scientists, they're probably not aware of, of the complete array of sleep disorder questionnaires that are out there. It's many, mm-hmm. sleep, it's many sports scientists I speak to and tell them there's over 80 sleep disorders and they kind of look at you like you're making it up. <laughs> they, think, they think there's really just insomnia or OSA. You know, mm-hmm. and so we have a we have a challenge as a sleep scientist when we're working with sports to educate everybody around this. I think, and um, many of the uh, people in the sports science area will just grab kind of questionnaires at the find or not understand the different questions for for different disorders, and then it's difficult to compare studies across the board because there's not a standardized measurement. And then exactly what you said, and I found the very same thing in my research is that using kind of um, questionnaires that have been developed and validated for what I call the fat 40 year olds uh, don't, <laughs> don't really um uh don't really yeah, yeah I can say like some 40 you know I am I am 
they don't really kind of have any applicability to athletes. And I, I, I often get that probably from one in three athletes. Why am I feeling in this? I'm not a shift worker. I'm not, a, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not like, you know, overweight. What, what's all these questions about? And it's kind of this lack of applicability to the athletes. So the athletes then kind of get pissed off because they're answering questions that we can't change because the tool has been validated against that set of questionnaires, that mm-hmm. set of questions, that criteria. So we can't change it. And so therefore, um, you know, to kind of just, yeah, tick a box and, and they get a bit, you know, um, apathetic about completing these things and they have no real relevance. But I think something like your tool, that you guys have developed, the ASSQ, you know, really um, looking at that is going to definitely help athletes in determining, you know, potential sleep problems. It's going to be easier to administer because it's one tool and it's going to be easier to compare, um, inter- to assess uh, interventions and compare the results pre and post and indeed between studies as well because as you know we that's the challenge we have in terms of um sleep and sports is we're always comparing apples with carrots uh one study is <laughs> like oh these guys got seven hours of sleep and the other study goes yeah but these guys got eight but the eight hours of sleep may be self-reported and the seven hours may be from um a wrist-worn device and another study might say five hours from in-lab polysomnography so it's mm-hmm. kind of like which one do you trust, you know? Um, so that's really where I see the benefit of the SSQ for, um, for physiologists and athletes. Yeah, I mean, that was the, the why, what prompted Dr. Samuels to develop the questionnaire is because he was finding in his clinical practice that, you know, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, the PISCI, was, was over-identifying athletes. And so it was really interesting um, and he thought about actually validating the PISCI in athletes, but it's, I think there's some other problems with it. It's difficult to score um, is one of the main things. And so that's kind of what prompted the development of the athlete sleep screening questionnaire. Yeah. So, Amy, with all this work you've done in athletes, um, this validation on the ASSQ, you've got a really good understanding of kind of what's affecting um, athletes and their sleep in relation to performance and recovery. Mm-hmm. What would be your kind of top tip to give to an athlete? I would say, I mean, we see a lot of uh, hyper arousal. So in athletes, so they're just wired before bedtime. So I think that's why having that um, good bedtime routine is really important to try and relax and calm down before bed. Um, I would also say caffeine use, which I know you're, you're a proponent of as well. So watching your caffeine intake and really trying to understand, um, is it beneficial for you? I mean, there's some work by Nancy Guest who, mm. in her study, I don't know if you've seen that, but yeah. she did a time trial in cyclists and found that you know, it only, the caffeine only benefited about 50% of the sample. And the other 50%, a portion of them, caffeine didn't make a difference. And then for the really slow metabolizers, it actually impaired performance. So really being in tune with um, how caffeine affects your body. And even, you know, I was looking at a study, someone reminded me of it from a few years ago, but the study showed that even a 7 a.m. administration of 200 milligrams of caffeine, there was an impact on that nighttime sleep in the EEG. 
So um, caffeine is a big one for me, just making sure that it's, it's beneficial for you if you are one of those fast metabolizers. And I mean, there is a lot to be explored within that area too. So I don't think it's definitive, but um, watching, so the caffeine intake, but then also hydration and the timing of exercise we see athletes who are waking up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom a lot. We'll see that when we compare our athletes to our controls. And obviously, I mean, hydration is really important, but kind of being mindful of the timing of that hydration. Um, and then there's one other thing I was going to mention. Um, fueling as well. So being mindful of that, you know, not eating a big meal right before bedtime if you can help it because that'll raise your body temperature and make it harder to fall asleep. Those are kind of a lot of the, the main issues that I see in athletes that, that could be helped. And very interesting, Emmy. It's probably 90% of the issues I see in amateur athletes who are mm, on a full-time job. Really? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. Yeah. So amateur athletes I speak to or work with, They'll finish work, let's say, at five. They'll get to the gym at six. They will drink a pre-workout drink that's full of caffeine. They'll exercise mm -hmm. like crazy from six o'clock till seven. But the caffeine doesn't kick in for at least a half an hour or an hour. So they're not actually mm -hmm. getting an er ergogenic effect, if, if at all they are. Then they'll run home. Now the caffeine is spiking. So they're running around now like, you know, somebody's on crack uh, <laughs> at home. Then because they've been at the gym, they're starving. Uh, then they'll eat a big meal then they'll probably eat that meal in front of the TV or an iPad or both, uh, respond to some work emails that they might have missed that day, quick conversation with their partner, jump into bed, uh, get on the phone, scan Facebook, mm -hmm. laugh at some videos, uh, go, to, go to bed, um, wake up a few hours later to drink water or go to the toilet, depending on how much hydration they've had. Um, and then generally they can't get to sleep before 12 anyway. And if they do, they wake up because they're completely... Uh, laced with caffeine so mm -hmm. <laughs> all those things as you're speaking <laughs> like that's probably most of the amateur athletes uh, you know who are trying to work as well so yeah all those yeah so what can we do to to help mitigate I mean some of those impacts um I think I'd say potentially supplementing with a nap would be would be a good strategy um if if possible I mean I know there's a lot of working athletes as well, but can you take a, even a 20 minute nap during your lunch break? You know, can you fit that in when you have some of those late night training sessions? Um, and then, you know, do you really need the, the shake every night, you know, after a workout? I did a presentation to some triathletes and we were kind of talking about the, one gal had, um, you know, the shake she found really affected her. She would wake up more during the middle of the night, you know, at least two times a night because of that shake. And it's like, you know, you don't have to have the shake every single time. You have to really look at the balance between recovery, um, good recovery, and, you know, some of that fueling and, and other hydration needs. Yeah. For sure. And do you, should you have a bigger meal maybe at lunchtime? Should you change your meal strategy or should you eat small and often? Mm -hmm. You are going mm -hmm. to have a pre-workout drink. Do you consume it at maybe 4.30 whilst you're at work? So you get the ergogenic effect while it kicks in at 6 o'clock when you hit the gym. And it's then not 
impacting or lessening the impact on sleep? Do you focus on your hydration throughout the day so you're not gulping down a gallon of water before you go to sleep? Yeah. But I think it's all yeah. those small things that will all, you know, help for the recovery. So it's a lot of things I'd be saying to teams, individuals, is even though you're thinking about performance, also think about the recovery as well and how you can balance out the both of them because it is, it is a balancing act. Mm-hmm, definitely. So, Amy, uh, the future. What, what does the future have for Amy? What kind of research, what kind of work do you envisage yourself doing in the, in the next few years uh, unless you win the lottery and retire? What's, what's, <laughs> what's on the agenda? Well, I really want to get into the more um, biomarkers of circadian rhythm. That really interests me. So um, can we phase shift people for evening competitions and how, what does that look like for performance? I mean, there's a, I think someone just posted about it recently that there is a world champion, a marathon world championship in Doha um, and it starts at midnight. So can so what I'm really interested in is can we phase shift with light therapy and um, potentially melatonin and how does that improve performance is really interesting part that I'm I think that's great Amy because in the martial arts area or MMA we see the same thing happening as well we see and I've spoken about this you know till I've nearly got sick. We see so many fighters getting up at half five, six o'clock in the morning, like Rocky, running around the town, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. punching walls, all to get ready for a fight that's generally going to happen between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m. Mm. Like, well, why are you conditioning <laughs> yourself to be awake and alert in the morning when mm-hmm. you're going to fight at night? And so you look at some of the very successful fighters in the MMA world that will generally train around the same time as the fight. Now, it doesn't mean you have to do that continuously all, all the time, but when you're in fight camp, four to six weeks out from a fight, you should be trying to replicate those conditions. And that's where I think work like yours would be very beneficial in terms of, of that for specific athletes. And then also for even athletes who um, are competing across time zones and have to fly in somewhere, compete, and then fly out again straight away. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting to me. So if I'm, you know, if I'm competing at midnight and my time zone is 10 hours ahead, should I arrive, and I'm in Calgary, you know, should I arrive right before the event? Because the destination midnight is the equivalent to my 3 p.m., you know? So I think those, those are very interesting scenarios that need to be explored. Yeah. Very good, Emmy. So um, where can people follow you, get a hold of you if they're in Canada, North America, and they want to speak to you about potential work? projects, uh, just even collaboration, and um, how can people get a hold of Dr. Emmy Bender? I guess the best way, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so I'm at Sleep for Sport on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, people can get in touch with me through that. Yep. Or um, the Center for Sleep website. So be on the lookout. We're going to have um, the athlete sleep screening questionnaire up there, so definitely check it out once, once it gets published. Yeah. So Sleep for Sport, the number four sport on Instagram and Twitter or through the Center for Sleep and, and Human Performance in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Amy, thank you very much for your time this morning, my time, your nighttime, yours. Really <laughs> appreciate you coming on the podcast and having a chat and uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers.
that episode there with Dr. Amy Bender. Music there today from Coldplay, Life in Technicolor Part 1 and 2. Always puts me in a good mood, that. Maybe I'll go and start running some hills after that. But after listening to Amy's episode, maybe I'll just relax a bit because I will be asleep soon. Okay, don't forget to follow Amy Bender, PhD at Sleep for Sport on Twitter. And you can also find her on Instagram as well. And uh, one of the good things about Amy on Instagram is she posts up um, slides a lot of time from her talks um, some really key slides or um, some interesting people she's working with and uh, some posters. So definitely worth following. And again, Amy is sleep the number four sport, just like sleep for performance. And you can contact me, Ian Dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au or head over to the website sleepforperformance.com.au for uh, some free downloads, blogs and more information. Um, so yeah, that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it um, and we'll leave you with a few words from our sponsors and we'll catch you on the next episode. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbiz. Orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, true to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability, and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing, and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organize a visit today to your organization. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is also brought to you by Sleep WA, Western Australia. Now, Sleep WA is one of the only few nationally accredited sleep laboratories in Western Australia, meaning that they have put their services and quality systems to the test against the national standards. They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now, I've worked with these guys before. They are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centers to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. 
SleepWA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The SleepWA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting into the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location. So a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals so you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC, so it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ReadyBank can improve safety and performance in your organization. Thank you for listening to these ads, now on to the episode. 